Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Helen Lackner. Helen has worked in Yemen since the 1970s and lived there for close to 15 years. She's written about the country's political, social, and economic issues. Helen is a regular Arab Digest contributor and the author of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, published by Verso in 2019. It's a seminal study of the current war and what lies behind it, and I recommend it highly. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here again. Now, since our last podcast in early February, the situation in some ways hasn't changed. The truce at Hudaydah port is at best fragile with continued sporadic fighting. The stalemate in Taiz continues, but in the key governorate of Madab, the war is hot. What is going on there, and why is the battle for Madab so crucial? Yeah, I think the important thing about Madab, uh, the offensive on Madab, or the Houthi offensive on Madab, is that um, it actually started in early 2020, and it's had its ups and downs. Uh, basically, the Houthis are extremely close to the city. Now, Marib is important for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, is that it is now the last remaining stronghold, as everybody puts it, of the internationally recognized government within, within the country, basically. And secondly, it is also one of the few areas that has significant resources. It's where most of the gas has been is found and where also one of the remaining and the original oil-producing areas is located. So really, it, you know, its importance is from the economic point of view for the Houthis. Its political importance is really due to the fact that once or if or when the Houthis take Mareb city and the rest of the governorate, because they already have quite a few bits of it, they will really then first be able to cut off the main road to Saudi Arabia and also have much di- have direct access onto Shabwa, Hadramut and other places in the rest of the country which they currently don't control. So it's an extremely important position, you know, politically, militarily and economically. And how close do you reckon the Houthis are to achieving that goal of, of taking uh, Madab city and, and the governorate? Well, they, they technically, they're very close. I mean, the only thing that's between them and the city is a few kilometers of totally open territory. And that's why they haven't got there yet, because the Saudi bombing on, that, on their forces is very effective. Um, there's no figures or very few figures available on the death tolls around the Maghreb offensive, except that everybody says they're extremely high. And recently I saw one figure saying that during Ramadan, they had at least, the Houthis had lost at least 500 people in that, in that battle. So really it's this piece of open terrain between the mountains and the city, which is preventing them from taking the city and moving further east. They've really got the area more or less three quarters surrounded now, uh, but you know this is this, this is why they haven't taken it yet, and but they are continuing and the offensive has its ups and downs. I mean the things go a bit quieter for a few days and then they flare up again for a few days, 
So it's very much an ongoing thing and now has been an ongoing thing for basically almost 18 months. Martin Griffiths, the UN Special Envoy, in his final uh, UN Security Council briefing uh, that was on the 15th of June, uh, before stepping down, uh, he spoke of Yemen as, quote, a tale of missed and then lost opportunities. I'm wondering, Helen, how many of those lost opportunities can be laid at his door? Well, I think a lot, basically. I mean, I think Griffith's tenure has been remarkable in its lack of achievement, I would say. Uh, I mean, one has to recognise that, you know, there is a fundamental constraint to all UN envoys or UN activities with respect to peace at the moment. And I think I've said that before, and I'm not the only one who said it. It is the UNSC Resolution 2216 of 2015, i.e., you know, a few barely weeks after the offensive started, after the war started. And, the, you know, the basic problem with this um, resolution is that it tells the Houthis to withdraw to where they were before they started. Given that the Houthis have been advancing and taking massive control of very considerable areas and the majority of the country's population, you know, suggesting that they should effectively surrender is pretty unrealistic. And I think one of the first mistakes uh, that Griffiths made, and I, it sticks in my mind because I was so stunned by it, is a few weeks after he took over, uh, he was interviewed by Al Arabiya, which is a well-known Saudi-supported uh, channel. And the interview gave him an opportunity at the end of the interview of saying, is there anything the UN or the United Nations Security Council should do? And instead of responding the way I thought he should have done, of saying, yes, indeed, they should change the, get a new resolution, he said, no, 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 everything's fine, let them carry on. Not, we don't need anything more from them. You know, he has, he's basically totally accepted what had happened before he came, i.e. for the first two year and the first two years, sorry, two and a half years of the, of the war. Um, he took up what had failed in the Kuwait discussions in, in, in the summer of 2016 and just tried to carry on, on the, in the same way. He has not in any way recognized the fundamental changes in Yemen, not just the Houthi progress, but also very much the fact that the, the anti-Houthi front is a very different entity, I would say, now than it was um, three or four years ago. I mean, it's now composed of a multiplicity of different groupings, different, call them militias or armed organizations, they probably call themselves armies. Politically, the, you know, there's been no major development on the anti-Houthi front or indeed on the Houthi front. So basically, he hasn't, you know, he, he's operated as if he was still in 2015 and he, he hasn't made any attempt to bring a new approach or to... to take into consideration the, the reality on the ground or the different factors and continued to try and create a discussion merely between the Houthis and the Hadis internationally recognized government, which itself is, you know, wasn't that powerful or significant or meaningful three years ago, but is even less so today. So, uh, yeah, a, a very weak response then to, to this 
terrible situation in Yemen. He's been in his his tenure was what three years, three and a half years, February twenty eighteen to now. So it's almost three and a half years. In that uh, briefing that he gave the Security Council, he praised the efforts of the Omanis in trying to end the war. I'm just wondering because there seem to be sort of mixed views on whether the Omanis have been able to achieve anything. What can you tell us about their efforts? The Omanis, you know, have a general policy worldwide of neutrality and trying to be positive and helpful in any opportunity that they're given. And it's important to always remember that the Omanis have held good relations with Iran and with well, particularly with Iran, you know, for since the 70s, i.e. from the days of the Shah until today. So they have that advantage. They also have, in the last few years, hosted some the main, the main senior Houthi negotiator. They have acted in, in bringing out a few hostages, including some American hostages in the last few years. So they have generally, and they of course have refused to be part of the coalition from day one. So in that sense, they remained neutral, you know, from the beginning of this struggle. So I think that's one important factor. What is new and different is that they've recently, and you know, between the 5th and 11th of June this year, they've had a major delegation in Sana'a. Now, this is the first time this has happened. And this delegation stayed for a week, which is really, you know, very, very significant. This has not happened before. They're clearly trying to create some kind of possibility or means to have a dialogue and to have, you know, basically to help the Saudis get out of this uh, quagmire. So I think the you know the big change in the Omani position has been the, that they've now gone in for active mediation and interventionism rather than just a passively uh, being friendly and neutral. And do you think that could then deliver some gains in moving towards uh, some sort of a peace deal? It's very difficult to say. To me, the fact that they stayed a week means that they, you know, that serious discussions were going on. During that same week, the internationally recognized government's foreign minister was in Brussels, and that may be of some significance. The U.S. special envoy, Lender King, is going back and forth and spending time in, in Saudi and Oman and everywhere. Griffiths also went to Iran. I think that they are certainly trying their best to work out something that will, I can't say end the war, because, you know, once you end the foreign intervention in the war, you're left with the Yemeni war. And, but certainly trying to, basically trying to help uh, the Saudis get out of this mess. And, you know, it's difficult to say... You know, things are, are still going on very clearly from what one little one knows from the outside. I of meet there are people traveling around and meeting around. The Kuwait uh, Emir has just sent letters to all the major parties. Something is going on. Whether it will be successful, I think, um, or what I can say is we just we can hope. Even if it is successful, it will not be an end of the Yemeni crisis. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the U.S. representative, uh, Tim Lenderking. Uh, Mr. Griffiths, in his May report, had spoken about uh, Lenderking's 
quote, tireless efforts, no mention of uh, Tim Lunderking in June in his uh, UNSC uh, report. So do you get the sense that the Biden administration sees ending the Yemen war as uh, not really that high up on the totem pole of their priorities? Or do you think they are quite determined to see this thing end? I, I'm not that qualified to discuss U.S. policy. Uh, my perception is that, you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, there was what I believe to be a mistaken assumption that all we have to do is get the Saudis to stop the airstrike and that will be the end of the war. Uh, and it looked like an easy win. Uh, it's clearly not an easy win. I think it remains on the U.S. agenda because if they achieve, you know, if an agreement is reached and is signed and is implemented, obviously it will look good for their, for their influence. You know, how, how close the top of the agenda it is when we have, you know, basically the much more direct issue of the Iran JCPOA. And certainly, you know, issues like China, you know, even issues like NATO and, and, and Russia and Crimea and even right now Ethiopia. I, I wouldn't like to say where which position is in the priority ranking. But I think, you know, insofar as they are committed and in a sense, you know, the Americans want to be able to continue selling arms to the Saudis and they and being involved with the, the Saudis and the Emiratis and, you know, they've made statements which make it more difficult now unless an agreement, unless some kind of... I don't like to use the word agreement because I'm really not sure that, that it would be that significant, but unless something is achieved. So, yeah, in order to resume the arms sales of the Saudis, they, they, they need to get some sort of uh, movement. Um, interesting point there, the extent to which American foreign policy in the region is driven by the necessity to sell weapons. Uh, as you told us in February, Mohammed bin Salman is, and I'm quoting you here, very much ready to get out, yet he is still very much stuck in the quagmire. And as you've said, the Houthis uh, have the upper hand. So what are the uh, odds that MBS can get out of the Yemen quagmire? Well, I think the, the issue is really what, you know, what currently is being discussed, whatever it is, you know, with via or with the assistance of Omani uh, mediation. I think it's trying to, they're trying to figure out a mechanism whereby basically the Saudis can get out without looking as if they've completely lost face. And the question is, you know, the, at, I mean, what is clear is that what the Houthis are saying is we want a complete, immediate, total end to the blockade of, of the ports, of the airports and everything else. And we want an end to the airstrikes. Now, the, you know, and I, in my view, it would make a lot of sense for the Saudis to accept the first part of that element you know, ending the blockade uh, and allowing the airports and port to operate um, openly and freely and without any constraints. Ending the airstrikes at the moment, almost all Saudi airstrikes are around Marib. So if the Saudis stop the airstrikes on Marib, as I said earlier, the Houthis will be in the city in a matter of 
days, maybe even less. And that would be, you know, a fatal or an extremely serious blow to the internationally recognized government, which, you know, the Saudis are in a way compelled to continue to support. So in a sense, you know, to, to have an end to all military interventions. And again, we have to remember it's not just the Saudi military interventions. You know, the Emiratis officially aren't there, but in fact they are there. And they've taken increased their role. So I think, you know, whether they've, they can find a formulation that will allow the Saudis to get out without losing face is to me the big question now, and I'm afraid I haven't got the answer. <laughs> well, now you've mentioned the Emiratis, and quite rightly you've said that uh, they, um, they've claimed to have pulled out of the South, but are still very much, uh, I suppose you could say, a sort of shadow presence, and uh, they've taken over the key island of Socotra, and among other things, they seem to have turned it into something of a tourist site. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, the Emirati via the Southern Transitional Council takeover of Socotra is the most blatant and obvious, you know, presence of, that they have. And turning it into a tourist site is just basically sickening because not only is it allowing, you know, the kind of tourism that is really highly undesirable, but it's also affecting... Uh, and the other activities in the on the island are affecting the the islands you know extremely valuable unique um plant life and all the other elements that make Socotra so unique of course they have a number of advantages one of them is that there are a lot of Socotris who are in the emirates and particularly in ajman and so you know, there are long-standing uh, relationships between Socotra and Emiratis. And so, of course, they are using that. But the other thing that is happening is that, you know, the, the STC and the Emirati and also occasionally the Saudi and in IRG involvement in Socotra is building up and exacerbating internal social and political divisions within the island, which is, you know, called basically creating a, a long-term, very negative situation. But I'd like to say on the, on the Emiratis that, you know, while Socotra is the most blatant and obvious, they are still present militarily both in, in two mainland locations in Yemen, in the, in the country itself. Uh, one is in Balhaf, which is the gas export terminal, and another one is a base in Shabwa, which is basically trying to to prevent the internationally recognized government from moving further south and having a, a better strategic position to deal with this STC, who are the Emiratis' sort of agents. Uh, and another one, which is more, more recently, is the building of a land strip and possibly other facilities on Perim Island, known in Yemen as Mayun, which is basically controlling the Bab al-Mandab, I mean, absolutely controlling it. It's right in the middle of this very narrow strait. And this means that the, the Emiratis, you know, can control anything and everything that goes in and out of the Red Sea and consequently to, through the Suez Canal, which is, you know, a very important um, strategic point for, for the medium to long term. 
And there one is led to wonder, and I say wonder because I think there's been speculation, but to my knowledge there's no evidence, you know, how much the new great love affair between the Emiratis and the Israelis is um, might imp impact on who is active and present in Perim. Mm, a very interesting point. And, of course, Israelis are also, as tourists, uh, heading to Socotra. Um, we've spoken about the Emiratis, the Saudis, the UN, the US. What about other external influences, uh, Iran, for example, or, or the Russians? Well, Iran obviously has some influence on the Houthis, and I think you know one of the things that will become clear in coming weeks, if anything emerges from these talks that are going on at the moment, you know, is to what extent the Iranians can influence the Houthis. I think their influence is probably a lot less than the US and the UK and the UN imagine, but it exists, and I'm curious and waiting to see, you know, how strong it is. Though, of course, it will be difficult to tell because if the Houthis make certain compromises, they may be making them for their own reasons, not because of uh, Iranian influence. So I think, you know, and I think there is a, a very indirect and, in my view, an increasingly remote link between the talks for the return of the JCPOA and the Yemen issue. I think that's less and less significant. And I think now with the new election of, uh, of Ibrahim Raisi as president in Iran, I think, you know, it probably will become even less significant. I think the Russians, you know, the Russians are one of the P5, as we know, and they did not, um, you know, subscribe to Resolution 2216. They have, they remain, they retained the embassy in Sana'a until December 2017 when Saleh was killed. Ali Abdullah Saleh. Saleh, the uh, former president forced out by the Saudis during the Arab Spring Revolution allied with the Houthis then, turned against the Houthis, and then was uh, killed by the Houthis. Um, they are now receiving in Moscow basically all Yemeni factions that choose to go there. And that means they've had uh, Houthi delegations, they've had STC delegations, they've now recently had Tariq Saleh delegations, or maybe him himself, you know, and, and they have an ambassador from the internationally recognized government. You know, their influence in the world, as we know, is a lot less than it was uh, a few decades ago. But, I mean, they are a member of the P5 and they have a say. And I think they are waiting for an opportunity to possibly, you know, use, use their vote in the P5 and possibly be involved in, in some kind of activities in Yemen. They were also hoping to have uh, some kind of naval access to Aden, and various people have promised it to them without the authority of giving it to them. But then the, the Emiratis took the facilities without asking anybody. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I think they're there and they are a factor they should be taken into consideration, I suppose, at much the same level as some important European states can be taken into consideration. Yes, and as we've seen, uh, Putin has used uh, various other theaters of war and discord to advance uh, Russian interests in, in the MENA region, thinking uh, particularly of Syria and Libya, of course. But uh, let me ask you this. You've, you've talked about the, the internal 
uh, fractiousness of the Yemen war, does external engagement have any real influence at this stage? I mean, could, for example, the UK perhaps step in, given our history with Yemen, and 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 offer some sort of solutions? Well, I think you know. I mean, many people have a much more international relations and international influence approach on Yemeni affairs. My tendency has always been to minimize the role of outsiders and focus much more on the local roles. So, you know, again, I, I think this is a bias you have to take into consideration when you, you know, when I answer this question. My fundamental view is that you know, external agents have some influence, but very limited, and that ultimately the issue is one between Yemenis. Now, of course, you now have a situation in Yemen where the situation, where the economic conditions and the financial situation of the country have worsened to such an extent that foreign influence you know, will be greater. And certainly there has been in the past influence from the World Bank, the IMF, the IFIs, etc. The Britain in particular, you know, has, as we know, had basically one special envoy and really two special envoys because Benomar really could be counted as a, a British special envoy, even if he has a Moroccan passport. Um, and Britain, of course, controlled Aden and the South. And the STC and other Southerners expect support from Britain. And I think some of them believe that Britain has considerable influence. Of course, the fact that they have this expectation and belief means that the Northerners and others and tend to have be particularly more hostile to British involvement and British influence. So I think it's important to note that that the you know Britain British influence I think is really more insofar as they have any influence in the UN system because they are the pen holders at the Security Council. Uh, they are not you know they've cut their aid to Yemen just as they've cut their aid everywhere else in the world and it wasn't that great in the first place. They no longer have any influence through the European Union, which they did use, um, and in my understanding, not very positively in recent years. So really, I don't think uh, Britain has very much influence other than on the arms sales issue, where again, you know, they're not that uh, important. So I, I think I would feel that Britain keeping out would probably be a more positive, would probably have a more positive impact on the situation than attempting to be involved. Yes. Um, interesting, of course, that Britain is selling weapons, bombs to the Saudis, uh, which are being used in the Yemen conflict. Um, I wanted to ask you about the abandoned oil tanker in the Red Sea, the FSO Safer. The last time we talked, you made the point very strongly that this is a looming environmental catastrophe, it's still there, it's still a looming catastrophe. Absolutely, it's still there. And I think, you know, what Greenpeace and other organizations are saying, it's no longer a matter of if, it's more a matter of when. Effectively, since we last talked, nothing fundamental has changed. There has been more discussions between the Houthis and the UN OPS to try and um, go and 
deal with it. But, you know, to my knowledge, they haven't got anywhere. Uh, there's more and more concern internationally. I think there's probably more concern amongst Yemenis who are aware of it. Um, and it's not at all clear, you know, I mean, basically every day that goes by and it not being addressed and dealt with is, you know, brings the disaster closer. So it, it remains a very much a, a, a very big, big threat to not just the Yemeni coast, but basically the whole of the Red Sea and the, and the coastal countries there. And it speaks too, doesn't it, about the, the Houthis and their willingness to use something like this a potentially huge environmental disaster or humanitarian food aid as weapons in their war, negotiating weapons, if you will, that they were very happy to sacrifice the interests of the Yemeni people to try and secure their own interests. Yeah, I, I mean... What I don't know and I'd like to know is, are the Houthis really, do they realize the level, extent of the danger? And are they, as you just said, ignoring it? Or do they think that basically, you know, the others are trying to fool them into thinking there's a real problem when there isn't really? And I just don't know. But it seems, you know... The, I think the most positive interpretation on, on Houthi behavior on this one is to assume that they they don't believe that this is as serious as it is and therefore they feel that you know the UN and the international community and others are trying to trick them into giving up the great value of this 1.1 million barrels of oil that is sitting in that ship and deteriorating as the days you know day by day if they do know how serious it is, I find it extraordinarily difficult to, you know, to understand how, why they're not, they're not cooperating. Well, Helen, it would be a staggering level of ignorance on their part for them not to know that this abandoned oil tanker leaking oil for all these years wasn't posing a huge environmental issue. I simply can't believe that they don't know. It, it, they, they have to know. I really feel that quite strongly. But um, I'm going to end our podcast, if I might, perhaps on a less gloomy note than we ended last time. Do you see any reason for optimism? I think the, you know, this Omani attempt at the moment I think is the most positive thing I've seen since basically 2016 and I certainly hope that it will have some impact on the situation and that something will come out of it. Whether it will have a fundamental impact on the humanitarian situation I think you know depends will depend a lot on on other factors really um, because I mean, one of the main issues on the humanitarian situation has been the funding. Now, the funding has actually been comparatively higher than than it would have been a year ago. I, towards the end of the half of the year, it's almost half of what has been requested by the by the UN. But you know, we also have to remember that COVID is still there and is extremely rampant around Yemen. Um, so. I, I would say that 
you know, an immediate relief and improvement in living conditions for the Yemeni people is not around the corner. But even if there is a, a first step of ending the war or some aspects of the war, this has to be seen positively. I think it would be difficult to, to not see it positively, but very much as a first step in a very, very, very long staircase. Helen, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, and maybe next time we could be even more positive. Indeed. I, I really hope so. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Helen Lackner. Helen is a regular Arab Digest contributor. Her latest book, due out next year, is Yemen, Poverty and Conflict, published by Routledge. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.